Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies on iTunes and via the web. I'm your host, Nick Cheeseman. Today I'm talking with Anthony Reid, an emeritus professor at the Australian National University's School of Culture, History and Language, about his latest monograph, A History of Southeast Asia, Critical Crossroads which Wiley Blackwell published this year, 2015, as the latest installment in the History of the World series. Tony, welcome to the show, and congratulations on your latest impressive study. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. When you spoke about the book at the Asia Book Room here in Canberra this June, you revealed that it was 25 years in the writing. Can you please begin by telling us a bit of the backstory to the book, the history of the history, so to speak? When and how did plans to write it begin, and why did it take around half of your long and very productive professional life to complete? <laughs> it is an embarrassing question. Indeed, it's, it's precisely half. Uh, I've been in the business, I suppose, of writing and uh, teaching for 50 years, and um, it was 1990 when this book was commissioned. I was embarrassed to be reminded by the publisher when when we started appealing to the, what's what's in the contract. My God, it's still there. It's still uh, been preserved somewhere. Uh, it, I suppose it's because when I published the first volume of Southeast Asia in the Age of Commerce, it made a little bit of a splash beyond the Southeast Asian world. Um, I remember the editor of this series that invited me to write, saying for him, the Europeanist, for him it had uh, created a new part of the world. You know, so, uh, so I was enrolled at that early stage when there was a bit of a buzz about that book. But as I said, I've got uh, lots of books I have to write, and this is a book for somebody later in the career, summing everything up. And uh, so, if it's okay, I'll, I'll leave it a few years. Uh, later, I decided, I mean, this, I mean, at several points on my life, I said, this is ridiculous. You've given me an advance. I'm sorry, here is the money back. Please uh, forget it. I'll go. And they said, no, 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 we want you to be guilty. We want you to feel it. Uh, and somehow, the, the, the people managing this series were still there to be I finally got around to six years ago, when I had done all the other urgent things that had to be done. And maybe it's an element of truth in this idea that some books are better written at a late stage. I think that's probably true. And so you do feel that's the case with this book? As you said, it's a summing up book. It is. I, I know myself the feeling I've had with, with, with certain books and, and theses well, who the hell is he to write that book? You know, what well, seems the impertinence of having some 22 year old something else to, you know, turn everything on his head. One does somehow, in some ways, defer to the older guys. Okay, well, 
If somebody else had done it, I might have said, ridiculous uh, ubers to, to, to skate so lightly over the whole thing. But, um, yeah, it, 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 in one sense, I had uh, got beyond that. And, and feel as if, I felt in writing it as if I was saying everything I needed to say about Southeast Asia, big pictures of Southeast Asia. And there's lots of books I, I still haven't written that I would have liked to write. But in, one, in terms of the big picture, gender, for example, I thought I should write a book about that. Religion, I thought I should write a book about that. But um, at, at one level, I've you know, put it all well, let's turn to some aspects of that big picture. You mentioned gender, and that's one of the themes that runs throughout the book. You talk a lot about the role of women in Southeast Asian economies and societies and suggest that that role has been grossly underestimated. So can you speak to that aspect of the book and why you think that's the case? I, I came up with this idea in the, in the 80s, I guess, when I was writing the book that became Southeast Asia and the Age of Commerce, discovered uh, from reading all the accounts of outsiders who come into this region, whether it's mainland or island south of the same kind of shock uh, on the part of travelers in the 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th century, that women are doing so much of the work, uh, that women are doing all the business, uh, the marketing, the buying and selling. It was a, a shock for Chinese and it was a shock for Europeans and it was a shock for Northern Indians. So... Um, but all of those peoples found that they had to be a woman and indeed to, to uh, find a woman, to, to live with a woman and, and split the business with her. It was an extremely advantageous. So I, I believe then, as uh, in writing that book, which was essentially about the 15th to 17th century, the pre-colonial South Asia, that this was an extremely important phenomenon, and I, I think I established that, and it's more or less become a cliche or an established uh, idea, I think, about early uh, South East or pre-colonial. What I hadn't addressed was what happened with modernity. Is that still the case, or is that just a quaint uh, piece of the past of no great relevance? Uh, and I, I did find that uh, troubling and, and necessary to address. And as you've all seen in, in the later chapters, I deal with it essentially by looking at the impact of colonial modernity on South Asia. I talk about modernity later, but essentially I, I want to see modernity not as meaning the place we're at now, but meaning a particular mindset uh, which uh, dominated Europe in the late 19th, early 20th century, um, which uh, was extremely gendered, which, which believed that um, women should be in the, in the home, having lots of children, uh, if you think of Victorian England, for example, and that men should be in the workplace, and that there should be a split like this, uh, and that this is part of the, the sort of urbanism that transformed industrial countries at that time, um, which meant that women weren't safe anymore. In the village, they can work But once they're in the city, that this kind of um, domesticity, dressed up with all kinds of Puritan religious explanations, um, was essential. 
So this was the form in which modernity was eventually accepted as a goal by Southeast Asians around 1900. Up till then, they'd on the whole resisted uh, a lot of the things the Europeans brought. But around 1900, give or take a decade or so, uh, everywhere the same sense took hold that um, this phenomenon, this mindset that has delivered railway trains and telegraphs and newspapers and canned goods and all kinds of advantages, the telephone, um, we want these things. Um, we can't uh, go on resisting. Uh, we want them, and it seems that part of the package is this patriarchy. So that was that was the way I uh, I looked at this. Basically, that modernity as in part a means of controlling women and domesticating them, but unsuccessfully in the end. You're sceptical about modernity in that period, or like the promises of modernity, partly because I gather when you compare it with earlier periods that you studied in depth, you find that it falls rather short, and that in so many respects there were more, and here I'm not just talking about women, but for the societies and economies of Southeast Asia, there were more opportunities, and they were more, and different kinds of prospects to those that emerged in the, in the late colonial period. Can you tell us something about why um, or another of the aspects of those earlier periods, whether it's the age of commerce that you discuss at length in, in one part of the book or other uh, earlier periods. I mean, what, what went wrong, as it were? Is some, something that was flourishing in that earlier period? Well, for instance, um, you refer to how the infrastructure that the late colonial period brought uh, mesmerised, I think is the term that you use, historians, led them to think of this as a period of high industrialization and economic growth. You say that evidence is now emerging that even in the, the age of commerce, in actual fact, uh, as a result of the interaction of Chinese merchants and traders, there was a greater amount of economic production and exports from the region compared to uh, subsequently. Thank you. Yeah, I'm glad you, you picked up that point. Indeed, uh, I've spent some time arguing that. In the age of commerce, I mean, that, that was a, a particular period when trade brought great benefits to Southeast Asia, when Southeast Asia was, in a sense, the centre of the unification of the world, and that it was the place that produced the spices, which uh, Europe went, went crazy about, uh, and that's, of course, the reason that Europe discovered America and discovered Asia, was that they were often pursued of the spices, which essentially located in Southeast Asia. So it gave Southeast Asia a central role and brought enormous uh, sudden uh, wealth to, to the trading routes around Southeast Asia. Um, that period ended in the uh, what I call the 70th century crisis, um, partly, most obviously, because the, the Dutch trading company, the Dutch East India Company, uh, succeeded in monopolizing the key spices and, and therefore reducing the benefits for Southeast Asians from the spice trade to almost zero, um, but harvesting great, great benefits for the company itself. Uh, at the cost of a huge infrastructure to, to control everything, to build forts and jails. Um, but even after that, uh, even after that setback, which was a crisis and which did, uh, did lead to a period when foreign trade seemed much less attractive and, uh, 
he was a kind of vernacularization of Southeast Asian studies. You, you have another boom uh, in the late 18th, early 19th century, um, which is essentially generated, as you say, by Chinese, by Americans, by others breaking the monopolies of the English and Dutch, and um, giving rise again to a more rapid period of export growth. And that's the only thing you can measure. But as economic historians have, have relatively few tools that are really, really concrete and satisfactory for the period before the 19th century, but export trade, international trade, is, is the key one. And uh, this certainly grew strongly before Haikaronism than during it. Haikaronism was actually a period of macroeconomic stagnation. That, that's now clear, I think, where colonial writers tended, I mean, they hadn't done the sums, I mean, there was much that hadn't been done, couldn't have been done then, but they tended to see the story as one of building the infrastructure, the railways, the harvest. Let's uh, go back to some other themes in the book and we'll, and we'll return to these points shortly. And if you don't mind, I'd like to talk about the state. Um, you tend to write against studies that emphasize or perhaps arguably overemphasize the role of the state, studies of state formation with which political scientists are formed. Um, why is that the case? And again, can you uh, pick up on some aspects of the book that, that speak to this position you hold? Well, thank you. I say, I say at the beginning that I think Southeast Asia is a good place to start on a project of de-emphasizing the state. But I really see it as something which historians have been trying to do of late and have increasingly realized uh, is part of the, the modern mission. Um, history as a discipline arose with the European nation-state in the 19th century, and it believed that its, its task was to chronicle the rise of those states. Um, looking back on it, now that we've become rather critical of nationalism, it used to be part of our uh, genes perhaps, or at least part of the way we were brought up um, in the 40s, 40s, 50s, 60s, um, but uh, now that we're more critical of it, we can see that it's, it's a particular uh, phase. Uh, and that what we were chronicling as historians was necessarily exaggerating mightily uh, that particular story. It, it gave us a story like, if you think of you know, English schoolboys being able to recite the kings of England or, or Australian schoolboys being able to recite the prime ministers of Australia, uh, as if that was the key thing. I mean, that, that was the story line. That's, you know, it's the politics, it's the state that provides the story. Now, once you say, well, really, is that the most important thing you can say about the past? There's the one promise to replace another, or one king? Um, of course it isn't. Southeast Asia, as I say, is, is a good place to show how other stories can um, be seen to be much more important because the state really was late to uh, make a big difference in people's lives. Um, that's that's my take, uh, that this was a, a, a place, a part of the world, where stateless peoples uh, were able to remain stateless right up until the end of the 19th century. Um, indeed, in some places, even now, hardly aware of, of the 
Step Midland Highlands and Small Islands and these, these sort of refuges of refuges of liberty, you might say, being, being free of the state. And it enables you to think, well, I mean, that, do they have a history? Of course they have a history. Um, but if, if, if we try to figure out what their history is, it'll help us see what other people's histories are also much more varied than that of the state. So it's, it, it seemed to make Southeast Asia a good test case to try to develop other stories, um, other huge changes uh, than the ones that my intellectual ancestors, the ones who sort of invented Southeast Asian history, uh, thought they were doing. So how did Southeast Asia work against the types of state formation that we see in India or China in that same period? Well, my standard explanation is environment. Um, I mean, you can't explain everything by environment, but uh, that's uh, clearly a lot of it. Southeast Asia is a place of forest and water where um, marching armies, uh, such as control the Roman Empire or the Chinese Empire, uh, don't really get much purchase. And the Chinese found that, of course. The Chinese relentlessly moved south with their bureaucratic state and their marching armies, and they built roads and they, they organized supplies. So they get across enormous distances. But once they got to the tropical environment of, of dense forests and heavy rainfall and uh, impassable rivers, um, things became very difficult. And, and tropical diseases, which they were less familiar with. Um, the, these factors are, are very important, I think, that uh, they made uh, Southeast Asia less uh, congenial to large state building projects, and at least until you had maritime empires such as those the British Dutch. But there's, there's perhaps another factor which I, has only recently occurred to me, and I think to the profession. Since the tectonic theory has become established, which was really only 20, 30 years ago, we realized what an extraordinarily vulnerable part of the world this is. I mean, the most populous and dangerous part of the Ring of Fire, where earthquakes, volcanoes, are everyday occurrences. That, that is now clear, and it was made extremely clear to me and to everybody uh, in the 2004 tsunami in Sumatra. Um, but if you think, I mean, since then, of course, I've been rethinking uh, how I feel about Southeast Asian history and making amends for the fact that I never mentioned earthquakes and volcanoes uh, and tsunamis in anything I've written before. Um, it, it does seem to me that it, this must be part of the explanation for why um, coast-based, agriculturally-based states were periodically wiped out or at least set back. But the uh, states which were built on exposed coasts would tend to suffer disproportionately and totally in, in tsunamis. Um, states that were based on agriculture, as almost as all states are, of course, um, would suffer especially from the mega eruptions which uh, cause a huge. Uh, of ash and, and uh, acidification of, of the air and so forth, make agriculture impossible for a decade. So this kind of uh, disaster must probably have been part of the reason why some of the, the states that we saw beginning to form in the 8th, 9th, 10th centuries um, 
didn't continue. And you and similarly you attribute that reason to or that's one reason for the end of the age of commerce, the long 16th century, that natural disasters again affected um, low-lying states. Yes, there, there isn't a single big natural disaster you can point to uh, that did it, but climatic changes uh, are thought now to have been a big factor. We can more easily point to some earlier uh, spectacular changes to uh, in the Bangkok or the 13th century and so forth, the general period of crisis in the, in the 13th century. Uh, climatic and, and uh, other natural phenomena causing that. But in the 17th century, there's also clearly uh, a change in the, in the rainfall patterns that is part of the explanation there. But I can only say a part. So the, these uh, environmental climatic features go to some of the reasons as to why at certain points in time states decline. But you also seem to be taking, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but an, but an analytical position against emphasis on the state, perhaps for other reasons. For instance, you, you talk about uh, one of your concerns in this book being, quote, to correct distortions imposed by reading back modern concepts of state into times and places where they, they don't belong. So, again, I wonder if there's something more to it than just uh, that uh, a rise and decline. Yeah, of course there is. And I suppose part of this is about the uh, discomfort with nationalist historiography. And in my earliest days, of course, I was part of the, the enthusiastic rejection of, of colonialism and embracing of the new nationalism. It was also exciting. But um, once nationalist myth-making took off and then became enforced as a sort of uh, uh, requirement that uh, textbooks would only teach this kind of uh, nationalist myth, um, it, it became a little more disturbing for the historians to see what, what distortions were taking place. I mean, the most obvious distortions are on the part of that kind of nationalist historiography, which uh, liked to talk about the great glories of the past, uh, as if they were states with prime ministers and ministers of finance and foreign ministers and so forth, as, as if this, these were states like the modern states that they were trying, were trying to be constructed uh, in the 20th century. Um, so that's, that's a discomfort. And I suppose that uh, I'm inspired to take this view, uh, not just by irritation, I hope, by, with, with the nationalist writers, but also uh, with the notion that we're living in a post-nationalist, globalised world, where we can no longer afford this kind of uh, nationalist distortion. We, we have to write, and I, this for me now, this is now fundamental, we have to write as if we are all on this planet together, uh, and that kind of partisan history that only writes the history of us 
and defines us in some arbitrary way to be read back to somehow people in the 14th century or somehow us against them. That kind of history is not only wrong in the distortion, but it's destructive of of the kind of world we need to live in today. So one of the features of Southeast Asia that you speak to throughout the, the book um, in these terms is um, a, an expression you use that I like is civilization without cities. Uh, and, and indeed one of the themes you identify at the beginning of the book also is how the cultural and economic structures of Southeast Asia differed from elsewhere and how they can inform our understanding of, of human progress. So Perhaps you could say something more about what form this civilization without cities took in, in different periods, its economic and social dimensions. We've touched on uh, women, of course. Another feature of the book that I was interested in was, um, for instance, was reciprocities between coastal and interior producers and how the type of economic relations that developed then enabled this civilization without cities across Southeast Asia. I recall at the end of the book... Um, where I'm trying to be upbeat uh, about, you know, saying that uh, despite a lot of manifest dangers and problems, uh, Wilson, Milton, religion and uh, conflicts, what holds Southeast Asian societies together is a sort of um, inherent valuing of civility in social relations, um, which has come. Uh, so, I, I think there is something in this that that pattern of uh, valuing interpersonal harmony, um, uh, avoiding uh, uh, self-assertive conflict in everyday uh, interpersonal relations, is something that goes far back. And it was never constructed by a strong state that, that required this kind of way, but rather by a pattern of firstly religion and secondly performance. I mean, that is the popular culture um, as dispersed through typically performances at every kind of festival, every kind of uh, marriage or event where there would be a play, a puppet show, or some, some kind of performance which would extol the, the correct manner of polite, um, civilised behaviour, always lighted with less correct buffoonery from clowns and so forth, which you knew that was more fun, but that's not how you're supposed to behave. You're supposed to behave like that. It's very elegant, low-key people who don't raise their voice and don't... I think, um, I mean, perhaps this, I mean, the civility thing can, can be overdone, um, but uh, it is a feature of Southeast Asia, um, and it, it's not one that has been built by, built by states. Um, if, if we think also about what created a Vietnamese culture or a Javanese culture, or a Bamaya culture. Um, I mean, sure, there were states that uh, embraced most of those 
people who speak those languages and, and embrace those cultures, but for rather short periods. Mm-hmm. Very short periods in which we can really say some sort of status is coeval with, with that, that civilization. In the Vietnamese case, as we know from, from the time when Vietnam started to expand down the southern half of what is now Vietnam, from the very beginning, it was two Vietnams. It was not a state, it was two states. And they varied greatly. The expanding one, the southern one, was of course extremely heterogeneous and engaged with Chan, Khmer, and Montagnard. And yet, a Vietnamese culture emerged, even though it was a very short period in which there was a state that, that, you know, only about um, a century, uh, 19th century, in which Vietnam was in, in any sense united politically and then very, in a very fragile way. Uh, and yet the, the, the idea of the Vietnamese culture is very strong. Um, that's even more true in, in Java, where the, the period for which it was a, a Javanese state is perhaps uh, 34 years in the 17th century. When there was a gunpowder king, you might say, a big short lived period of, of uh, strong centralization. But um, all the rest of the time, Java has been very disunited. But there's no question that the, the Wayang is a very Javanese thing. And its stories are shared and loved. And, and they, that has been so since way, way back. It's, uh, it's described even by Ralph Hosback in the uh, 1800s that this is how the culture is transmitted. This is how people uh, know what their culture is. Uh, in China, people knew what their culture was essentially, I mean, uh, two levels. There's the literati written culture of the classics, which is uh, state level, what holds us together. There's also popular religion. But the, the, um, the state level thing just didn't really operate much in Southeast Asia, except for to some degree, limited degree here. It was rather the, the popular culture thing and the popular religion. So you would be saying to someone who say, visits Southeast Asia and goes to the uh, sites like Bagan, Angkor, or Borobudur that uh, what they're looking at are really exceptions to the story of Southeast Asian history rather than the centerpieces that they're so often held up to be, or have I perhaps misinterpreted um, your Well, work? it's a <laughs> good question. The Angkor in particular is hard to fit into my scheme. But Pagan and Borobudur, I'm quite happy to embrace as and, and to have re-examined. But what are they really? Are these royal uh, cities or are they great sacred centers of popular life? I have no doubt that it's the latter. If we think of Borobudur, I mean, the, the historians, the early historians, struggled hard to find kings that could explain this, how, how this thing was built, uh, and how they could explain that, you know, not that far away, about 40 kilometers away, was wonderful Hindu buildings built at the same period. And so they, you know, how there could be two different strong states doing different things. 
the, the truth, I think, particularly with Buddhist uh, monuments, is that this was part of these, these were built by the donations of ordinary folks, or at least the great plurality of folks. So they had some resources that could um, But we, we have inscription, we have evidence of, of lots of this uh, particular Kagano, all the people who built different towns, and it's not the and that's why there's just so many. Angkor is a, is a, it does look like a big, bad bureaucratic state. And uh, uh, it's not, uh, I think that it's called Angkor, essentially, state. And I, I, I believe uh, that there are some environmental reasons why that became a very successful policy controlling the, the the waterworks and the, the, the cycle of, of agriculture in the area north of the Jongasa. It's, it's a particular uh, advantageous location, which they worked very well for several centuries. Um, but even so, the new work on Uncle is seeing vastly more plurality uh, in the early. The early work saw it as a succession of Chayalaman, the first Chayalaman. And, and that these guys did it. Um, now, I think we, we can, the archaeology is revealing that the, the, the big temples of Angkor are replicated, the irrigation works of the center of replicated in all kinds of other small communities in a similar way. As if to say that each community had its own hydraulic system and its own religious system. Uh, so that it, it, it wasn't much of the discussion that you have around the Nagara polities concerns Indic religions, but when we get into the later periods, we see increasingly the story is about Islamic traders, um, the Portuguese emerging with their uh, particular brand of Christianity, and indeed the emergence of what you describe as the first global war fought out in the Indian Ocean on religious lines. Can you say something about that aspect of the book? Yeah, well, that of course made a huge difference, and and it was it was the Portuguese intervention in the Indian Ocean that that changed profoundly the nature of of maritime interaction, because the Portuguese had been crusading against the Muslims in their own country in, in Portugal, and then they continued that in Morocco and down the coast of Africa, and they came into the Indian Ocean with the same. Mix, perhaps even more powerful mix of economic motive. You know, we want to get spices, we want to get them directly out uh, through Venice and Cairo uh, along that Muslim controlled route. Um, we want to get the spices. Uh, but also, we're quite happy to hammer the Muslims to do it. So we feel entitled to raid every Muslim ship and uh, attack every Muslim fort where we think there's enough. A, 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 a new kind of element of, uh, in a sense of barbarity, of uh, saying you know, to take this offensive is okay. That maybe that only describes the first twenty years of the Portuguese, because of course that that's a very short-term strategy, and you soon realise that you can only do business if you if you accommodate people and, and so forth. But it did create a Muslim reaction. It did create an 
appeal from all the Muslim centers around the nation to the big, big Muslim power of the world, which was Ottoman Turkey. And the Ottomans controlled both ends of the, the, the Suez, uh, now since the Suez now, the Eastern Mediterranean and the Red Sea and, and so forth. So they appealed to Turkey, send some fleets out and you know, get these guys out. They appealed on religious grounds, of course. Turkey controlled the, the whole places, Mecca Medina. And uh, we want to do, do our pilgrimage to Mecca and Medina. The Portuguese are appearing. Please, um, it, and you had an interesting uh, globalization uh, around Eurasia, at least, uh, of the battle between Habsburg, Catholic, Spain, and the Ottomans, uh, which, of course, on the ground in Southeast Asia, that identification of political interests, religious interests, economic interests, uh, in the polarization between Portuguese and Europe, that, that profoundly changed things. And it meant that, uh, in the, for me, that's a decisive moment in the definition of who's, a, who's an Uplanga and who's a Muslim in the, in the Muslim past. Southern South uh, Islam became a political project, uh, which was not an economic project, to dominate the spices, keep the domination of the spices, and to attack the Portuguese. And then, to, therefore, to attack anybody who wasn't on this side of that contest. And so those who felt themselves attacked, who had, had not been Muslims, um, had felt they could do business with the Portuguese, uh, tended to retreat up to the hills and become what we call stateless people, become the island savages, whatever, of, uh, of later times. I mean, this is part of my, my story of, of how to give stateless people a history, to, to see that they were not always stateless people. They were not essentially different linguistically and ethnically. They're the same peoples as the lower peoples, but they, um, at this point, find themselves as having rejected this sort of package. Here you have some affinity with uh, James Scott's work on uh, mm -hmm. Zomia, and you say that he worked out a similar um, set of ideas and, and, and drew them together for the uplands, mainland, Southeast Asia that you had already been thinking through on the uh, archipelagic regions. Now, if you would like to discuss that aspect of the book any, any further before perhaps we turn back to modernity. Well, I, I know Jim Scott pretty well, and ever since he was a graduate student in Ottawa when I was just started my career. And we've, we've exchanged thoughts on this a lot. He wants to tell you a little bit. Certainly he's influenced me, who didn't. Um, when the book came out, uh, I mean, this was a, a real broadside. I mean, it, 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 uh, I knew, you know, we were talking about these ideas of statelessness being a choice, being about something that, that we actually prefer freedom. It's, it's in effect freedom uh, from the constraints of the um, And But when he wrote that uh, manifesto, uh, The Art of Not Being Governed, uh, it, it's, I, I felt, well, okay, this releases me, but I don't have to, you know, 
make this argument. It's loud and clear. It's much, much more loud and clear than I would have dared to do. And indeed, very ably done. Of course, he sometimes overstates it and doesn't allow too much room for what are obviously the beneficent uh, consequences of having a statement. There are lots of reasons why life is, is less nasty, brutal, and short when you do have a statement. But um, so I, I took that as, as part of the, the toolkit I had to deal with since it came out just as I was getting this thing to a final stage. Uh, and the other book that came out, of course, uh, a little later was, was Rick Lieberman's book, which in a, in a sense is an opposite book. This is a very big book tracing the way in which the state did expand. South Asian state uh, expanded, he's arguing, in the same way that the European state, the Chinese state, that the states became ever more large, centralized, culturally integrated. Um, so they seem to be both saying irreconcilable opposite things, but in fact, both, uh, of course, expressing the truth and important truth, but uh, uh, part of the truth. So um, I, I hoped to steer a course between these two, um, but clearly, um, in terms of novelty, what I have that's new to say, I am more legitimate in that, um, although as I might say, discipline and what I do like, but in terms of being excited by this idea, how do we give status peoples a history? How do we, how do we acknowledge that the state isn't the whole story, that, that it isn't as if, oh, you missed the bus, so you, you, you don't exist. The bus is is the state, and it's going in this direction. If you miss, well, I'm sorry, you don't know the history. Um, we have to do better than that. And, and I, I was excited by that challenge. Well, um, whoever comes out um, on whichever side of that argument, it's clear from your text that, and indeed from, from others as well, that, as you put it, with uh, the emergence of higher colonialism uh, around about uh, 1880s, uh, one of the key changes was the ending of autonomy for states evaders. And you point to how the fixing of borders had been part of a state practice for, for a long time, but there were really very new implications in this period. Um, among the other implications of the period, and perhaps we can come back to where we started the discussion at this point in, the, in this late period and then into the 20th century, uh, you, you say that the, the colonizers succeeded in creating a sophisticated system for export agriculture, but one that, on the other hand, um, discouraged manufacture, hardened economic dividing lines into racial ones, and succeeded in producing stagnant economies through European-owned monopolies that trapped most of the rural population in Southeast Asia in poverty. Sounds almost like the inverse of the age of commerce. So I wonder if you could uh, talk us through again some features of this period and, and why you've made uh, quite a strong statement in this respect. Yes, I suppose this is this is my um, my economic historian's judgment of high colonialism in a way that's I suppose it's true opposite to some of the books I read when I was a student in a long time ago. Um, 
which, which saw the infrastructure being built as if that was the birth of the modern economy. In some ways it was, but it was not the birth of entrepreneurship. It was, in a sense, the death of entrepreneurship. Because uh, these were uh, government-linked enterprises, especially in the 19th century uh, and, and before, it was, it was an entirely state uh, company, a, a monopolistic Catalyst enterprise, even in the 19th century, as much like that. Even when um, the um, colonial powers adopted what they saw as a, as a liberal policy of allowing investment from all quarters, um, the, the Europeans in Southeast Asia remained a small group who knew each other, who had cozy arrangements between uh, private enterprise and companies. Um, where the degree of uh, real competition was rather low. What you had in each of these colonies was a, a hand, four or five big banks and big companies and big, uh, what they call trading houses, National Prosperity and the city, that, that handled all the business, that were very cosy with government. They all went to the same clubs and so on. And really, the great majority of the population were not part of that. Uh, and then you had the Chinese, who were uh, not just that they were entrepreneurial in time, of course they were, they were as an immigrant group, every immigrant group is inclined to have to find that they get into business because they can't get into agriculture so readily. So um, they were that way inclined, but um, the way the colonial um, stasis might developed, the structure developed, in a way, if you want to do business, you better call yourself Chinese. If you want to do agriculture, you better call yourself Burmese or Jawis or something. Uh, I mean, what's the Burmese case? We have to meet Indians as filling most of the roles of Chinese. Um, Part of this, I, I venture the idea, somewhat uh, perhaps uh, tentatively, because it's a it, it's unknowable fundamentally. But I did try to link the failure of the indigenous population throughout Southeast Asia, or their, their if you like their retreat from entrepreneurship to the maleness of the colonial project. The, the colonial era and colonial establishment, whether government or business, was entirely male. It was not a woman insight. And so modern business seemed to work that way. When the modern European businesses, or indeed Chinese businesses, to a somewhat lesser extent, but even Chinese businesses also very male, um, looked for indigenous partners. They looked for men, always. Um, now, men had not been very good at that, because um, men in Southeast Asia have to worry about status. Status is, is extremely important. And Status is hard to reconcile with doing business effectively. Status meant you had to look as if you're a rich dude and you don't care about money. 
it's you know, lovely to us. Oh, yeah, take it. Um, they left that kind of business, the haggling it, to their, to their work. Women did it rather well. Um, women didn't disappear from business, but on the whole, I mean, the, the story of colonialism is what happened to indigenous middle class. There's no entrepreneurs. Southeast Asians became an aristocracy, a tiny aristocracy, who did the government and peasantry. So most of Southeast Asians was peasantized. Uh, and um, the structures simply made it very difficult. The gender structure among them made it very difficult for uh, indigenous people to get into it. And that's still a marked problem most of Southeast Asia. But it's, uh, of course, become less so, partly because women have got back into business. So, in particular, most strikingly in the Philippines, which is one of the world leaders in, in terms of female entrepreneurship. Well, you seem to suggest that more generally women in Southeast Asia are, are relatively more mobile and liberated than their counterparts in many other parts of Asia and indeed around the world um, as a result primarily of their pre-colonial heritage and the continuity of traditions from earlier periods than um, what in, in a sense look almost like perverse claims of the late European colonizers that they somehow had something to do with the liberation of women when your suggestion is that it was very much the opposite. I am suggesting that, yes. Um, what the claims about liberating women um, are especially directed at very aristocratic women. Um, so the, the King and I story of Anna Renons, um, which of course became very popular, uh, is a story about a, a unique monarchy, um, I guess the surviving monarchy in Southeast Asia, which um, was exceptionally, Mongkut only became king and stopped being a monk when he was about 55 years old, I think, but he had uh, something like 40 wives and all of the children. So um, that was a, a, a bizarre world. The, the reality well, the other part of that um, is that liberating women or, or protecting women, it was, of course, in the, in the colonial era, it wasn't about liberating, it was about protecting. Um, so um, the European idea was that women should not be out there in the workplace in dangerous situations where they might be exploited or something. So, I mean, there was a protective idea. There was a, 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 the early, perhaps one of the earliest attempts by the International Labour Organization during the League of Nations time in the early 1920s. They tried to uh, pass an international statute saying no women should work uh, after five o'clock in the Anyway, and in Holland, they signed up for that. Uh, because very few women worked in Holland anyway, uh, certainly not respectable women. Uh, one of the, the least uh, favorable places for women to work in, in the world. 
Um, but then they tried to extend it to the Indies, and of course all the employers said, you must be joking, you know, our factories were collapsed. Our factories are based on that. When you do the, the production, the tobacco factories, cloth factories, they were staffed by women, as, as they were not in Europe. So um, this was sort of heavily defeated in the trouble. So the, the, the um, yes, part of the, the rhetoric of European was to protect them, but also uh, to, to educate them. And uh, education was, of course, the business of religion, uh, mostly. And all the religions, they all, all major religions in Southeast Asia, of course, external to Southeast Asia, they all came from much more patriarchal places, and they all were very patriarchal. They all uh, thought our kind of sacred education is anything. And, uh, so in that sense, uh, the Europeans did protect They brought the idea that even the moderns should educate I'm going to jump to the final parts of the book and um, listeners are going to have to take a look at the text for themselves to learn more about the revolutionary and nationalist movements of the pre-Second World War period. After the Second World War, we turned from, from high colonialism to high modernism. And one of the aspects of the work here that struck me was you talk about the paradoxical, unprecedented embrace of, of modern European cultural and political norms. So what happened in this period that there was this seemingly paradoxical embrace? Uh, I, I do think I mean, it, is, it is paradoxical. Uh, we did uh, imagine, I suppose, uh, when we first embraced these, these revolutions that brought independence to Southeast Asian countries, that it was some sort of return of, of um, Asian culture. But in fact, the, you know, the people who inherited those revolutions were exceptional, truly exceptional modernizers. The, the Europeans had had, up until the First World War, and then we we'll say that 34 years before 1914, the Europeans had also had a lot of confidence, a lot of confidence in their model, that, that, that only the European model really works for the world, so we can cheerfully try to impose it on everybody, European-type law and commercial norms and so forth. Um, but they never thought of uh, imposing this in the cultural or religious domain and, and changing people's habits and, and dresses. But the, the, the new revolutionary states actually did dream those dreams. They imagined that what we would do was build new... Uh, Indonesians, new Filipinos, new Vietnamese, new Germans, that we would, we would build um, a, a new modern country um, that was united by the revolutionary struggle uh, and by all the wonderful education and so forth we're going to introduce, not by its cultural and Indeed, the cultural pattern was very diverse in those um, But it, it seemed to matter a little. So, for a while there, in the 50s and 60s, 
was a, a distinct downplaying of the tradition of the Asian. And, and with the, obviously, the embrace of Western dress, for example. I mean, how did that happen? Why did it happen that everybody suddenly started looking the same? Um, I mean, in a sense, it happened everywhere in the world, but um, much more so in Southeast Asia than in South Asia. Stress is still quite common. Many things in India are still much more uh, entrenched. So, the, 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 particularly the revolutionary countries, Vietnam, Indonesia, Korea, it's Vietnam, Pol Pot, Cambodia, ghastly. But also Singapore, you know, with the extraordinary chutzpah of the Yu. Uh, to think that he could totally reinvent the society. Uh, from people, kampong dwellers living in, in little villages with coconut trees and chickens running around, to put them all in 15-story apartments um, where they all had to mix with each other in a strange life. That was social engineering of a, of a colossal scale. So I mean, Paul Potts, breathtaking, uh, appalling uh, idea that, you know, you impose a single model and throw out everything traditional about Cambodia and all of those past money you go. Was, was a sort of radical extreme, but even somebody who is generally seen as, as socially conservative, uh, like Lee Kuan Yew, was very convinced that this first generation was entitled to make these sort of changes. And, and indeed, because of their status as the bringers of independent state, almost good. Uh, not in terms of constructing something new, but in terms of casting off the many old things. So there was a, a lot of cultural loss, but I think out of it came, for better or worse, out of it came relatively coherent nation states. That's, that's the extraordinary thing. That's, I suppose, one of the, one of the extraordinary, unexpected, Phenomenal. Unexpected if you were living in uh, free independence, Southeast Asia, any of these states, I think you, you would never have expected that there would have been a single education system which would uh, ensure that everybody throughout these vast, sprawling societies spoke the same language and thought, uh, was educated in the same so what does it mean to talk about Southeast Asia today? Um, is the is the idea of Southeast Asia still relevant as it once apparently was? Um, in, in some of the things which I talked about in earlier periods as United, the region, its environment, its material culture, its sort of rice agriculture, and the pattern of food and the pattern of housing. Well, they don't seem so relevant anymore. Everybody lives in cities. Everybody, in a sense, is, uh, to that extent, like the rest of the world. Um, the environment is much less uh, important. Once everybody moves around in the air-conditioned shopping malls and so um, So in, in many of those respects, things are different. But nevertheless, the way in which Southeast Asian countries have evolved have created a new kind of 
distinctiveness, I think. Um, here I mean distinct from China, distinct from I begin that book by saying you know, this is part of the point, but it's not that you just have the derivative you know, bits of Indian culture and then the Mahabharata and the Ramayana and bits of Chinese culture and Vietnamese um, Confucianism and so but, but rather that um, the, these societies have distinctly demarcated themselves from those two Leviathans, those two great civilizations. Um, and that's nowhere clearer than, than ASEAN and then looking at the response to China's aggressiveness in the South China Sea. Of course, the more that happens, the more I'm not like Vietnam, which might well have felt that they had as much in common with China as, as with Southeast Asia, more probably. Um, but the more uh, there is a, a need to assert that being not China, the more Southeast Asia makes political sense in it. But I, I guess I, I said towards the end that the kind of politics that Southeast Asia has developed, and that you and I and all of us have wrung our hands with grief and woe lamentation about um, these soft societies, these corrupt societies. That, that never seem to get their act together. That um, this is usually analysed, particularly when Southeast Asia was doing badly economically. We usually analysed this phenomenon in negative terms. And I mean, we, we didn't treat them as a collective. What's wrong with Southeast Asia? I mean, much of it was also what's wrong with South Asia. But you know, why is it got so little Dynamic wise, entrepreneurship so low. Why is corruption so endemic and nothing that states think they can do actually gets in the way of it? I think one can, if we look hard at China and look hard at India, we can be a little more positive in this model. I mean, particularly since economically it has been doing okay. We're now less inclined to say what's wrong with Southeast Asia and so much to say what's right with Southeast Asia, particularly if we compare it with other parts of the tropics and of the tropical world that um, has, has nothing, nothing else environmentally quite like Southeast Asia, but anything that is remotely like it, um, Southeast Asia is doing pretty well. But it, it is a kind of, um, I wouldn't call it modern through. But it is a kind of accommodation um, which has not been legalistic. And again, many of my colleagues differ from me on this, and I myself am often deeply frustrated that people who commit atrocities and mass murders seem never to be brought to justice, and the system seems not to want to bring them to justice. The, the way Accommodation works seems to be to preserve this civility, to preserve the, the sense of harmony uh, as if we could all be part of a, a system in which we're reasonably civil to each other, in which we compromise and, and value a kind of consensus, even if it's, it's a very official uh, consensus. 
Um, now that that is, I think, a kind of reality. Uh, sometimes it makes us wince and protest that justice is not being done. The evil perpetrators of atrocities brought reconciled with the victims uh, rather than being punished. But it is a way of doing things, and uh, it is a way of allowing society to move on. And if one compares with either China, which has a strong state that can get things done, but totally unaccountable state, totally zero marks when it comes to globalization, um, which Southeast Asia has, has done much, much better in terms of allowing for the freedom of expression so here and there. Um, in South Asia, which of course is a paragon of amazing, bountiful, plural democracy, but it can't liberate its women and it can't liberate its, its castes. And, and that's an appalling failure of modern state. So, in between those two, little um, notions of geography, the Southeast Asian experiment, such as it is, which needs analysis and needs better minds than mine, much more research than able to uh, to to make sense of it as a, as, a, as a whole. But I do think it's, it's A, something distinctive, and B, something critical, <laughs> to go back to my book, something critical for the world to look at and, and comment as to whether this is as worthy of attention as either China or Tony, at the end of a, an interview about a book that took a quarter of a century <laughs> to write, I, I fear that my closing question um, may sound a little bit impertinent, but we do have a tradition, for better or worse, on this podcast of asking interviewees what they're working on now and what we can expect from them next. So do you have, uh, I, I'm sure you do, but would you like to share with us um, what's going on at the moment by way of another project uh, and uh, what can we look forward to from, from you in the future? Well, perhaps, perhaps three things. Um, firstly, most importantly and immediately, I, I feel with this book I've really had my dues, you know, I've acquitted my obligations to my profession, done, uh, said, well, if I had something to say, it must be there. That's what I mean, if it isn't there, well, I had a real opportunity. But, um, so I feel liberated to write my novel. I guess we all sooner or later have to write our novel. So I'm, I'm playing, I'm enjoying playing little games and writing my novel. But I mean, there's also some other things. Uh, one day somebody should write a history of Aceh, and I suppose it should be me because I've done a lot on Aceh. So, uh, a place I couldn't. I mean, one has to be hesitant about writing a national history. I, I think. These days, I, mean, I have never done it. I've never written a history of Asia, Asia, any country. You know, I've been asked to do so. And to do it for Pache when it was in a state of revolt would have been a highly charged and political thing to do. 
to, to have to say, well, this is a separate place that has its separate history. But now that this is restored and a Chinese democratically part of rural Indonesia, I, I feel I, I perhaps should do that, although I've written quite a lot of And the third thing is that I get a bit stirred up about is the, the natural disasters that I mentioned before that ever since the tsunami in 2004, I've been rethinking what the past must have looked like and, and realizing it must have been pretty scary uh, at times. It must have been horrendous. And therefore the future will. This, this will work out. And it, uh, if, if we had another eruption tomorrow, almost ever, even Tambora or Jani in the 13th century, Tambora in 1215, and Jani in 1256, um, and some others we don't know about, but even those two, which they must recur, then. Um, this will be an extraordinary challenge. And uh, it, it has the effect on me, not necessarily, not apparently on our governments, but on, on me of, of feeling more convinced that Homo sapiens is one with responsibility for this very vulnerable planet. And playing our nationalistic games is time's up for that. We, 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 we've done plenty of that. We've done plenty of harm doing It's time to regulate this planet nationally, and it's time to prepare for the big disasters when they come. And we have to prepare collectively for those. And it, it should humble us, uh, as in, in a sense, the tsunami humbled Indonesia and made it realise pursuing this. Military solution of killing every every uh, separatist of nature just is, is, is obscene. And, and such a natural disaster. Um, I think something like that should make us pull together and think harder about it. So I, I will play with that theme and try to work harder on understanding past disasters and the philosophy of future disasters. And try to be right our government. Professor Anthony Reed, thank you so much for speaking to us today about a history of Southeast Asia, critical crossroads. It's been a pleasure and an honor. Thanks very much. And thanks to everyone for listening. I look forward to having you join me again for another meeting with an author on new books in Southeast Asian studies. And if you have time, do check out all of the other great network channels like New Books in History, where this show will be. Cross posted. Hey, thank God, get the chin to vote. Monkey! Hey, thank God, get the chin to vote.